and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning again. It is great to have you worshiping with us here at Faith Bible Church. Uh, a couple of quick things before I dive into today's message. Uh, first and foremost, you might look around and things look a little bit different. We're excited about that. Uh, obviously, we are in the process of repainting the church. Uh, we're going to continue moving forward with that over the next couple of uh, weeks. We're hoping to conclude probably uh, either by Easter Sunday out into the lobby area and then on into the Sunday school rooms, etc. Uh, over the following week. So uh, when you walked in, things do look different, but a lot brighter, a lot bigger. And so uh, excited for that. Wanted to remind you of it. Now, Next thing I wanted to just go over with you, uh, last week we did conclude the preaching series on one-to-one. This Wednesday we will conclude the Bible study teaching on one-to-one. We have been putting those up on Right Now Media, so if you're not able to make it Wednesday nights but would like to be part of that or are interested in it, uh, we will have those available for you. That being said, I also wanted just to encourage individuals, last week we uh, put this sheet out in the bulletin, and it is essentially a sheet where if you have been praying about an individual that God has brought to your heart to lead through one-to-one, that you would put their name down, and then obviously we would put the names of those individuals on that sheet and be praying for them couple quick things. Uh, obviously, God um, was gracious, and we see a lot of names there, but also we realized that we had a snowstorm last Sunday that might have kept some of you from uh, being able to come. So where I'm going with this is, if you have an individual that the Lord has brought to your heart and would like to add him or her or them on that sheet, feel free to do so. You can write that down, and then um, at the end of service, if you'd like, you can come and drop it in the basket. Uh, we will take those. We will then uh, compile them on that list and continue to be praying for those individuals. Lastly with that, if you are in need of a leader's guide or uh, a participant's guide for one-to-one, those are up on the table and available for you. You're welcome to grab those and utilize those in the one-to-one series. Praising God for uh, how he's moving and working, but we just ask that you would continue to pray uh, for the individuals' names that are on the list, and then also just be praying for the individuals who've committed to this. We're excited to see what God uh, will do. Um, final thing I'm going to say, and then I'll dive into today's message. Um, go Hawkeyes. Anybody excited? Like, I mean, hold on, hold on, just a, just a sec, hold on, just a second, okay? Um, guys, I'm a Denver Broncos fan, and I'm, like, more excited when they, like, get past 500, right? Okay? They're, they're in the national championships. Are you excited? Okay, so, so go Hawkeyes. Like, do we need more coffee? Like... Is it, is it daylight savings? Like, what's going, go Hawkeyes, right? Okay, all right, all right, anyway. Um, excited about that, I promise that I won't keep you here uh, until the game um, for fear that I would be um, joining Jesus in the crucifixion. Uh, no, seriously, this morning I wanna take a moment and uh, I just wanna remind us, and I wanna take an take a opportunity just to tell you about what is transpiring in the week that is ahead of us. And I want us to be mindful of what Jesus is going through and will go through so that on Sunday, when we come and we're able to say, he is risen, he is risen indeed, we recognize truly what has transpired for us to be able to say that. 
Uh, this morning, it's a sermon title called The Road to Victory Winds Through Suffering, and it's out of Isaiah 53. And one of the things that I have to remind us all is in order for Christ to be victorious, he had to suffer. And so before we dive into today's text, I just want to take you through essentially the week's events of what Christ would be going through. Recognize that today, traditionally speaking, or in the scriptures, uh, Christ would enter into Jerusalem um, as the Lamb of God, as sort of uh, someone being hailed by individuals, that the Messiah has come, being praised by people. We would then see in a few short days a drastic change of events. Um, interestingly enough, you would think about how was your week? Maybe you would go to someone and say, how has your week been? And what we have to realize is, is Christ's week would be one that would culminate everything that is going on in the gospel. We would see that essentially through Monday through Thursday, Jesus would be moving closer and closer to his ultimate mission, which was to go to the cross. Then we would see that on Thursday, he would speak to his disciples, giving them essentially a meal that would emulate what it was that Christ was about to go through. He would then be arrested unlawfully and unjustly. Unlawfully and unjustly. And I want to take a moment and I want to talk about this for a minute. The Jewish people in that day prided themselves on a judicial system that was just. They were individuals who had worked to create a system that would essentially be the modern day, what we have, innocent until proven guilty theory. And what you have to recognize is that in the history of trials, this was an absolute debauchery of justice. Because Christ being wholly just received the absolute most unjust trial so that he could then justify us. Any attorney, anyone in the legal profession, anyone who would have any understanding of the legal right that Jesus had would look at this and say, this is a travesty. And yet we, we come to discover is what? Did Jesus ever cry out and say, this is unjust? I'm being falsely accused. I want a right to an attorney. No, what did he do? Like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he kept his mouth quiet and moved forward with his mission, a mission of passion for you and I so that we might have eternal life. The very ones who would hail him as king on Sunday, today, would yell crucify, crucify, crucify on Friday. And that's you and I. And what I want to remind us of is when we walk into these doors next Sunday or wherever you might be to celebrate Easter, we need to be mindful of what it took for Christ to be able to allow us to say what we say next Sunday morning. And interestingly enough, when we look at this, we're going to look at Isaiah 53. And we have to realize that in order to have victory, in order for us to be able to cry out and say, he is risen, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Christ had to suffer for our sins. Recognize that this was not plan B. This has ultimately been God's plan A. And one of the things that we're going to discover when we look at Isaiah 53 is how um, it depicts everything that is going to go on. 
in Christ's death and resurrection from the grave. I'm going to ask a question, and then I want to dive into sort of the context of Isaiah to where we can understand what's going on in the Scripture. And then I'm going to read these uh, 12 verses. But what I find interesting is, is when we read them, I want you to notice that they're speaking passively. Interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, it's passive final. It is essentially speaking as if the event has occurred and it is done. But may I remind us that the words that were penned by Isaiah were written some 680 to 700 years prior to Christ's death on the cross. The author speaks as if it is final, yet he is speaking to a future event, which makes the Bible all the much more unique and interesting like we spoke about before. The fact that someone was able to prophesy with detail this event that depicts the very nature of what Christ would do in a final way and yet, it was 680 to 700 years down the road. Helps us to understand the uniqueness of God's plan and the purpose of God's plan. The question we're asking today is, how can there be victory when one suffers and dies such a miserable death? And interestingly enough, what we have to see, particularly when we watch Christ on the cross, perhaps we've seen the Passion, or we've seen maybe another movie of Christ being crucified, it's obvious to look and say, what's going on? The plan's gone awry. The king that so many people thought was coming to bring them freedom was now dying on a cross. And the reason that I bring that up is so many individuals were hailing Christ as king because they, they thought he was going to deliver them out of the oppression of the Roman Empire. They exalted him because they thought that they were going to receive something temporal that they were going to receive either power or status or freedom or authority or something to which they could have access over the Romans. What they didn't understand is, is they needed to be freed from something far greater than the Roman Empire, which was the depravity of their sins. What they didn't understand was Christ wasn't coming to establish an earthly kingdom. He was coming to establish the heavenly one. A kingdom that would never end, a kingdom that would never be shaken, a kingdom that would be never broken. But yet, in order to do that, Christ had to suffer and die a miserable death. And so one of the things that I want to encourage us in this week is may we take moments throughout the week, just five minutes here, ten minutes there, to think about where is Jesus now? What would, be, what would Jesus be doing right now as I'm waking up and having breakfast? or going off to work, or spending time with a friend. And obviously, as we move closer and closer to Wednesday and Thursday, I encourage us to think, what would Jesus be doing now? What would Jesus be doing now? Obviously, moving toward Good Friday, where we recognize Christ died on a cross to forgive us of our sins. When we look at Isaiah, a few things before we dive into Isaiah 53, I want to just kind of help us understand the context of where we are, but also the beauty of this book. Isaiah was a prophet who wrote, again, about 680 to 700 years before Christ came. It has been hailed, essentially, one of, or if not, the most comprehensive prophecies that has been written. And as we look at it, we're going to see that the book of Isaiah falls into two major parts. The first part of this book are chapters 1 through 39, and it is speaking about the coming judgment upon the people of God. 
Isaiah is prophesying and saying essentially to the people of God, because you've chosen to go your own way, because you've chosen not to follow me, I'm going to tell you that judgment is coming. But yet what we see is a transition in chapter 40 where it says comfort, oh comfort for God's people. And from chapter 40 to 66, the second part of the book, is about grace and salvation, the restoration of the people of God, the hope that the people have. Interestingly enough, many scholars will quote that the book of Isaiah is kind of affectionately referred to as the fifth gospel. Interestingly enough, if you want a clear gospel account, Isaiah 53 is the one. And yet it is a prophecy that is spoken in the Old Testament. Yet it has every element in it from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. If you want the message of the gospel in the Old Testament, you will see it clearly in Isaiah 53. Interestingly enough, the book turns rapidly from the coming judgment of God to the coming restoration of God's people. And the pinnacle of that turning point comes through the beauty displayed by our suffering servant, Jesus Christ, in Isaiah 53. This passage right here is the gospel. And may we understand what Christ has done so that we may have eternal life. The other thing, too, is Isaiah 53 is so important. The parts of Isaiah 53 are quoted and referred or alluded to in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1st Peter, and 1st John. That is how important and how impactful this prophecy truly is. The other thing too, just so that you're aware, the latter part of uh, the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, are broken into three triads. The three triads essentially are speaking to the salvation of God's people out of the domination of Babylon. That's the first triad. The second one, of which we're going to find ourselves this morning, is speaking about salvation from sin. And then the final triad is, is the establishment or salvation to the kingdom of God. For those that would be dispensational in their thinking, it's the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Today, we find ourselves in the passage that is speaking about the triad aspect of our salvation from sin. And what we're going to see essentially in the suffering servant is the exact depiction of what Christ would go, go through so that you and I could have eternal life. I'm going to start off this morning um, in verse 1 of 53, but I will tell you if you want sort of the full aspect of what's going on, uh, for whatever reason when they decided to do the chapter breaks, uh, they broke at 53, but the true sort of speaking uh, picks up at 52.13. So if you're interested in looking at that, you can also read those passages. We start off in 53.1, and it says this, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence and no any deceit was in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will seek his offspring and prolong his days and he will prosper the Lord in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for their transgressions. It's interesting to watch and read what Isaiah writes, recognizing that what is written is in the past final. And please uh, take note of that. We look at it today and we say, well, obviously this is what occurred, but you have to recognize when the people of God heard this, how unique this would be to them. Because even though the Messiah is eternal, Jesus, being God in the flesh, has, had not yet come. And yet here is an individual Isaiah writing about what would happen to the Messiah in final language. And think about that for a minute. Because Isaiah's writing with clarity. When we look at it today, it's exactly what occurs and yet what we have to remember is, is that the people of God would hear this and they would wonder what was transpiring. And a year would go by and two years would go by. And the next thing you know, a decade would go by and a century would go by. Close to 680 or 700 years before Christ even came on the scene. And the reason that I bring this up is remember and recognize that just as this was written in sort of past final we have to remember that as we celebrate Easter next Sunday, the resurrection of Christ from the grave, we also can celebrate the fact that it's been written past final that Jesus will return again. All of this comes together. All of this is what brings us hope. But this morning what we have to recognize and remember is to get to where we want to go, we have to watch our suffering servant die on a cross. And my prayer for all of us is, is that when we come in on Easter morning rejoicing, recognizing indeed that we worship a risen Savior, we would have taken the time to also worship the one who was hanging on a cross on our behalf. Because it's easy to look to the resurrection. 
And the resurrection is what gives us our hope. But in order for the resurrection to occur, we must watch our servant die. But better yet, we must also recognize that the reason our servant dies is because we put him there. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we come and we worship a risen Savior, but to truly worship the one who was risen from the grave, we must recognize that we are the ones who put him on that cross. And when we recognize that we are the ones that put him on the cross, and yet he was innocent, and yet he kept his mouth closed, all the much greater is it when we say, oh my gosh, he is risen, he is risen, he is risen indeed, and we are forgiven, we are forgiven, we are forgiven indeed. One of the things that I want to show us, particularly in this, is as we walk through this passage, the first couple of verses uh, are being uh, sort of written to help us to see the unique aspect of who Jesus is. And what I want to draw us to as we look at this is to understand that there is nothing about Christ that is enticing to the world. Notice this for a minute. We read that Jesus essentially is just an average person. He doesn't come with prosperity. He doesn't come with power. He doesn't come with authority. He doesn't come with money or position or status or title. He's just an average person. And one of the things that we have to see and look at when we uh, look through this passage is how unique and true that is. We look at verse 2. It says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And a, like a root out of dry ground. And he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. How often is it that we look and we look at the depiction of leaders. We look at the depiction of individuals who are strong. We look at the, 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 the picture of people who are powerful. And oftentimes the portraits that are made are ones of glory and majesty and power and strength. Just look at the nation's uh, leaders. Look at the global leaders of nations over time. Look at your dictators. Look at the people who are in positions of power. And you're not going to see a portrait of them. Humble, meek, lowly, modest. It's always one of authority and power. And what's interesting enough is while those individuals might have had authority and power, the one who is all-powerful, the one who grants them that authority and power, comes with what? No majesty to esteem him. Nothing about him to attract us to him on a worldly level. One of the things that I find interesting in that is, is for us to recognize and realize that Christ doesn't come to give us things of the world. Christ gives, comes to give us eternal life. That's what Christ is doing. And then we continue on and we look we see that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I want to take a moment, and I just want to, want to pause on that, and I want to speak to that. Christ's life was one that was glorious. But we read in this scripture that Christ was familiar with suffering. And one of the things that I want to encourage us in, one of the things that I want to, to remind you of is that when we go through life and there may be periods where we suffer, 
right here is where you can look and say, I worship a Savior who is familiar with my suffering because I worship a suffering servant. I want to take a second, and yes, this drives to Christ's suffering on the cross. That's the culmination. But also, don't ever think that when you speak to Christ, that Christ can't understand your struggles, your hurts, your pains, and your suffering. He was familiar with it throughout his life because he was and is our suffering servant. And that can be great peace and hope to us as we walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We look and we recognize that Jesus is just this average person. And what I want to show us is that inherently, think about this for a minute, inherently we look for a king who is strong, charismatic, and powerful, who could deliver us from our enemies or our circumstances or our suffering. We do not look for someone who can save us from our deepest need, which is our sin. Let that sink in for a minute. Do we really look for someone who can save us from our sin? Inherently, we look for someone who can make us powerful, give us something, put us in a position of authority, help us overcome whatever it is that we might need. But what Christ had come to do was to save us from something that often we don't even recognize that we need which is to save us from our sin. And so one of the other things that I want to encourage us in and want it to remind us in is when we come again next Sunday and we say, He is risen, He is risen, He is risen indeed, may we recognize that the reason Christ has risen from the grave was, yes, to be glorified, but it was to demonstrate His triumph over sin and death and to give us eternal life even though we don't deserve it. It's interesting because there's nothing presidential or regal about Jesus. But interestingly enough, as we see in the text of Isaiah, he will rise to be the king of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Notice also on Easter Sunday, when we celebrate he is risen, he is risen, he is risen indeed, that Christ has been risen to a spot and exalted to a place that cannot be broken, that cannot be overcome, cannot be overthrown. This suffering servant, this average Joe, this individual who really had no charisma comes forward on our behalf, enters into Jerusalem, and in one week will go to the cross so that we might have eternal life. We look at this, and we see Isaiah's prophecy, and yet we know that Isaiah is speaking for God, and this is what I see occurring in this passage. God the Father is telling us that through Isaiah, I'm going to bring you someone that has nothing to offer you on a temporal level but has everything to offer you on an eternal one. And so my question is, is are you willing to receive what he has to offer on an eternal one, which is the forgiveness of our sins and life eternal with him in his kingdom? And if that is all that Christ will do for you, is that enough? 
Because so often we go to God and we say, we want more. We want more. We want more. And so often what we do is when we don't get more, we begin to become angered with him and wonder if he's there. Wonder if he cares. And what we must remember is that Christ's entire purpose to go to the cross was to save us from our deepest need, which is the forgiveness of our sins, to give us eternal life. Everything else that we have, everything else that God gives, is the cherry on the Sunday. And so may we be grateful for whatever it is that God gives beyond our salvation, but recognize that the whole purpose of what Christ has done is to bring us salvation from our sins. And so what I want to ask you is this. Have you accepted his eternal offer? Can we rest with his eternal offer? And when we come on Sunday and when we say he is risen, he is risen, he is risen indeed, can we be grateful for the fact that we no longer are guilty of our sin? We turn to verse 4, and it says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. It's interesting because as we watch Jesus from the time of the arrest to the time of the crucifixion, we see in a brief moment the world turn on him. Quickly, rapidly, and aggressively. And then we see in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Notice that. Our transgressions, plural, inclusive, possessive. It's not he was pierced for the transgressions of the people of that day. He was pierced for the transgressions of that individual over there, but you didn't do it. What's interesting is, is again, we're speaking about a past event, yet it occurs in the future. And so one of the things that I want to remind us in is when we read this, we must include ourselves within this text. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And I want to take a minute because oftentimes when we look at verse 5, that's sort of the one that everybody remembers. But what we do is, is we focus, and I'm not belittling the first part, but we forget the second. And I want to just take a minute and I want to talk to us. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. What peace do we need? Why was he punished? And why was it placed upon him? When we dive into this verse, when we truly understand what's going on there, we begin to recognize why we worship a risen Savior who has forgiven us of our sins. 
What we have to remember is, is that apart from God, we are at war with him. We do not want him. We are not just on our own. We can't get to God by our own good doing or by our own intellectual assent. And in order to bring peace with God, what does God do? Give us his son and place the punishment that we deserve upon him. When we talk about grace and mercy, what we need to remember and recognize is is mercy is something that we receive when we are guilty of it, and yet we do not receive the punishment for it. And so may it remind us that we are guilty of our sin, that what we deserve is to be apart from God. What we deserve is eternal punishment, and what we see scripturally is, is that is a destiny that is hell, a spot that is apart from God where there is eternal suffering. And yet, what we see as Christ comes forward and places what we deserve, the punishment that we deserve, on him to bring us peace. And so, may I encourage us, when we say he is risen, he is risen, he is risen indeed, that we worship a risen Savior, but we also recognize what we have in Christ and what we've been saved from. We continue on. And then we see we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Interesting enough, we talk about sin and we see what that is and we discovered even in our Bible study before that sin in sort of its core, in its essence, is this desire to live independent from God. I don't need you. I'm fine. I can do this on my own. And we see that that's really what causes Adam and Eve to move forward with the choice that they make in the garden. And that separates them from the unique and beauty, uh, beautiful fellowship that they have. They have all that they need. They've been given everything that they could ever want. And all God says is, look, there's one thing that I tell you to not do, and that is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. And it's interesting because uh, last night we were sitting there and we're reading uh, a book to Noah and uh, it's talking about the garden. It's basically the garden, the curtain, and the cross. And it's talking about the garden where Adam and Eve are and um, these pictures of Adam and Eve uh, with God. And it says that this spot in the garden, there's, there's no hurt, there's no pain, there's no sadness, there's no sin And yet the only thing that keeps them from moving forward with God is the very thing that they desire, which is to be God and live independent from him. And so in that, they obviously choose to do so, which we all would choose in and of ourselves. We don't need you, God. We don't want you. And yet, what does God do? In that, he doesn't say, that's it, I'm done. But he moves forward with the gospel message, which is to give us his one and only son so that we might have life through him. So that we might be reunited back with him to a spot that will come, that is coming, and that will be, which will no longer have sin or hurt or pain or suffering. The story will go full circle. 
the story has gone full circle. And yet what we must see is in order for it to do so, what Christ does for us on our behalf. The other thing that I find interesting is this. When we read, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And we read the story of the sheep, the 99, and yet Christ goes after the one. May we be reminded of that. Thank you, Father, for going after that one, particularly when that one is you or me. May we count ourselves as the one. May we not place ourselves among the 99. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it continues on, and it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, don't, don't miss this, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. I've said before that the most unjust trial ever recorded in history is the trial of Jesus Christ. Everything in the legal system of that day that the Jews prided themselves on think about this, was removed, rejected, and denied. Christ did not receive a fair trial. It wasn't even close, and the reason was because of the oppression that the people had upon him. He easily could have said, this is unfair, this is unjust, this isn't legally correct, this isn't right. And yet what we see is he's silent through the whole thing. When I think about that, when I look and actually put myself in Christ's shoes, the more and more I look at how convinced he is of his mission. And his mission is you and I. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Interestingly enough, one of the things that I would say here, and I'm just, this is within the, the scripture, but it's also a side note. Right here, this passage debunks anything about the Da Vinci Code. So if you ever are sitting there and and you ever want to talk to anybody about the Da Vinci, well, it's possible that maybe Jesus, you know, ended up living and he he, he went in and he he had a scuba tank and, and, you know, it was all kind of a conspiracy theory. Right here, this passage speaks finally that Christ's descendants are ended. 
Now think about this for a minute because what you have to recognize in Jesus' day is the blessing that people saw of God was for individuals to have a long descendant line. And Jesus' lineage on a worldly level is cut off right here. But Jesus' lineage on a spiritual eternal level is right here. One of the things that I find so amazing in, 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 the, in the joy of who Christ is is not only, even though I don't deserve it, even though I can't get it on my own, even though I'm guilty of it, even though I would be the one who would yell, crucify, crucify, crucify. Christ loved me enough to go to the cross, to die upon it, to give me eternal life, but not just eternal life, to give me a spot in his kingdom, but not just a spot in his kingdom, to call me his blessed son or his blessed daughter. That when we have Christ, when we've been given Christ, not only do we have eternal life, but we've been given the kingdom and we're adopted into God's family with a full inheritance, with the keys to the kingdom, with the rights and the privileges that we receive. And so again, when we come on Easter Sunday and we say he is risen, he is risen, he is risen indeed, May we recognize what's behind those words and all that goes in for the ability for us to be able to say that on Sunday morning. And then I think about this. Okay, so, so Christ has died. Christ has done so. He's received an unjust trial. He's, he's now hung on the cross He's given up his spirit, which is a whole nother sermon for another day. But he's gone. Can we at least honor him by giving him a place of prominence? Can we at least honor him by giving somewhere was? There is an individual who was an amazing person. And what do we see? He was assigned a grave with the wicked. So not only was he not guilty, not only was he not wicked, not only did he go to the cross to die for our sins, even though we should have been the one on the cross, but now he's dead, and now the world's going to say that person in that grave is going to be remembered for being wicked. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence and no deceit in his mouth. You know, I think about this for a minute. And have any of us never done any violence? Have any of us ever not had any deceit in our mouths? 
And yet that's what Christ was and is. And that's what he's done for us. What we have to see in what I'm driving toward in these verses, verses 4 through 9, is while there's nothing about Christ that was enticing to the world, we have to remember and recognize that Christ's suffering and death removes the guilt of our sin and gives us eternal life. And yet, in order for that to occur, may we recognize truly what Christ went through. I'm not belittling the agony of the cross. I'm not belittling what happened on the cross. But also may we recognize that way before the cross, Christ was despised, rejected, and hated by men. And yet not once did Christ say, I'm not doing this. Not once did Christ say, I'm innocent. Not once did Christ call for an attorney. Not once did he say, I'm done. Because his mission and his eyes were focused on you and I today to bring us eternal life. And then we move into verse 10. And we recognize that Christ's suffering and death removes the guilt of our sin and gives us eternal life. But what we see in verses 10 through 12 is this. That therefore Christ willingly goes to the cross to save us from our sins. And for me, that's what drives my heart to worship him. He, he, he doesn't say, hey, hey, Dad, could you get somebody else? I'm busy that day. I mean, I'm kind of getting the shaft here. I don't really want to do this. He never says, you know, this, this isn't right. This isn't important. He never tries to put anybody else in. He goes forward and he says, I'm going to do this because it is the will of my Father. And the will of the Father we see earlier in the passage is to what? Crush and destroy him so that we who deserve that punishment can have eternal life. It is the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I've talked about this before, and, and I just want to say it again. Um, I could not give my sons or my daughter for people who would want to kill me. I just couldn't. And I think about that and I think if I were standing there and if, if today all of you were yelling, crucify, crucify, get rid of him, get rid of him, we don't want him. I think that I would love, but I'd be honest with you, I would not give you my sons or my daughter so that you might go free. Particularly if I had done nothing wrong. And particularly if I knew the system I was under was completely unjust and it was completely rigged and it was completely, utterly, terribly, horribly unjustified. 
And yet the father says, Jesus, this is what I want you to do. And Jesus says, okay, dad, that's what I will do. And when I think about that, I think about the love that is displayed by the father and the son for you and I so that we may have eternal life. So that we can come on Sunday and say, he is risen, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And so lovingly, when we say that next Sunday, may we recognize what it took to get there. After the suffering of his soul, verse 11, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. That's you and I. We're right there in that verse. To be justified by Jesus in watching what he does drives my heart to a deeper aspect of worship. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. You know, when I, I, I read this and I think about him pouring out his life unto death, I think about the time that Jesus is hanging on the cross. And I think about the physical agony that Jesus is under. I think about what he's suffering being fully human. But I also think about what he's suffering being fully God. And at each moment, each tick of the clock, each second that goes by from the moment that he's strung up on the cross and nailed to it to the moment that he gives up his spirit, I think about the fact that every tick of that clock is the forgiveness of my sin. And I don't know about you, but I've watched the passion of the Christ and I look at that crucifixion scene and to be honest with you, I have tears in my eyes, but my initial thought is to fast forward, to get through it. And I wonder what we would do is if we would slow it down and play it in slow motion and recognize that as each scene goes by, the forgiveness of our sins is occurring. And to recognize that in order for us to be fully forgiven, that's what had to happen. I want to share this with you, and I just hope that this encourages your heart, but also makes you really contemplate what we have in Jesus. We will never fully understand the victory that we have in Christ, who is our suffering servant until we realize that we are under the judgment of God and have no ability to pay for our sins. The whole reason this goes on, the whole reason that we see this whole scene, the whole reason that this is prophesied is that you and I in and of ourselves have no means to get ourselves holy before God. But yet what we see in this scene is the one who is holy 
takes upon our sin so that we may be called holy, righteous, and just. And so when we talk about the victory in Christ, when we speak about the victory in Christ, may we also remember that the reason that we speak of the victory of Christ and the reason that we can speak boldly with grace is that we have to be reminded that we have no ability to pay for our own sins. And then when we understand and we look that God willingly does so and that Jesus willingly goes to the cross like I talked about before, I also want to share this with you. I feel that we will never fully understand the love, of, uh, the love displayed by Christ, our suffering servant, until we realize that it was the Father's will to send his son to die upon a cross and that Christ did so willingly that we might have eternal life. When I think about the Father saying, go and do this so that the people whom you've created may be redeemed, the people who would reject you, despise you, call for your crucifixion, who will place you through an unjust trial, who will destroy you by the, the, the most vile means known, will place you among the most vile people, and then when it's done, put you in a grave marking how vile you are. And Christ says, okay, I will do that. For you, my Father, and for the people who despise you and me. It just drives my heart to worship Jesus even more. How can there be victory when one suffers and dies such a miserable death? In Isaiah 53, we see it. We see the gospel displayed. It's a glorious picture of what I would call essentially a past future through the prophecy that is so eloquently and so detailed in what will occur. And what we discover and what we see in this is that there's nothing about Christ that's enticing to the world but we also recognize that Christ's suffering and death removes the guilt of our sin and gives us eternal life. But in order for that to occur, may we recognize that Christ willingly goes to the cross to save us from our sins. I leave you today, and what I would ask that you pray about and you think about this week as we move to Easter Sunday is this, that the road to victory winds through Christ's willingness to suffer and die upon a cross to save us from our sins. And may that drive us to a deeper heart of worship when we come next Sunday and say, he is risen, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you, we just thank you for you, we thank you for our Savior Jesus, we also thank you for the text of Isaiah. We thank you for his words, we thank you for the detailed account of what would occur. And Father, we thank you for the fact that Christ was willing to do so on our behalf. Father, as we move from Palm Sunday to Easter, I just pray that as we go through this week, we would take moments where we would just contemplate, I wonder what Jesus was doing now. I wonder what Jesus was thinking about now. And Father, as we move closer and closer to Thursday and then on into Friday, may we recognize indeed that Christ's eyes were on the cross. Christ's eyes were on you and I. And Father, thank you that he went to that cross so that we might have eternal life. Father, may we recognize the darkness that overcame the land. May we recognize the hope that was lost in so many people as Christ hung on that cross and gave up his spirit and was laid in the tomb. May we recognize the confusion and the despair. May we recognize the fear and the doubt and the, the concern 
for those hours that seemed like days when they wondered what had just occurred. And Father, as we wake up on Easter Sunday and as we recognize that the tomb was empty, that Christ wasn't there, and as we come and we say he's risen, he's risen, he's risen indeed, and as we see in the accounts of the gospel that people see Jesus alive and restored, may that bring hope to our hearts and to our lives. Father, when we read that he appears with the nail piercings in his hands, piercing in his side, people see him and touch him, and yet he's alive and restored, and they bring us hope. And Father, when we read and recognize that Christ has now gone to a place where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, building his kingdom for you and I, and when we worship and recognize that just as what was said by Isaiah, that Christ would go to the cross on our behalf, so too that has been said by other prophets, Christ will return as a victorious king. May we realize and recognize that that day is coming. And Father, so we worship a risen Savior and we're grateful for the fact that we've been saved from our sin, but we may also realize that Christ's kingdom has come and is coming and will come according to the promises of Scripture. And there will be a day where there will be no more hurt, no more pain, no more sin, no more school shootings. And we will sit with you in your presence forever. What a glorious day that will be. May we remember and recognize that in order to get there, in order to get to that victory, that road to victory winds through your suffering. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say,